All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll read this passage again. This is the fourth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. And uh, so let's read it. So we have the context there. We The context really goes all the way back to chapter 5. In chapter 10, it goes all the way back to verse 19. But we'll pick it up here in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Arrogantly insulted is the meaning of that word. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, to help us again, look at your notes so we get the context. We're asking questions of this very difficult passage. And we said there were two initial questions, and you've got to constantly keep these in mind. What is the sin in this warning? And what is it? Apostasy. So you got to remember that this isn't simply falling away. This isn't, or this isn't simply uh, deliberately sinning. This isn't simply a season of sin, of which backsliding. We often call that backsliding. This is deliberately apostatizing. Second question: How does this persistent, deliberate sin of apostasy happen? And what have we said? It is a slow fade, and you can see that if you read through the book of uh, uh, Hebrews, this fourth warning. We're on the fourth warning, so there's three before this. It starts out with drifting, and then some disobeying, and then here we're into more outright, deliberately sinning, and it's a slow fade. None of this happens overnight, and it happens in the heart, and that's you, you can't see. You can't see what's in the heart. Only God sees, and only the Word of God penetrates to the heart to even uh, address this problem. So now we're looking at two critical questions, and we started last week with this question. Who is being warned not to commit apostasy? And that's kind of the real tough part of this this passage. Who is being warned not to commit? Now, look at verse 26 that we read, and then look at verse 39, which is really the the last verse in this this, uh, passage. So look at verse 26. For if we, so the author is including himself, he's including everybody in the church. Uh, You know, we know that he is a true believer. And so he's saying, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation. But then, after going through all this warning, he ends the passage, verse 39, look at this. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So it's like this, there's this tension. Well, who's he talking to? Is he talking to true believers? He's talking to false believers. Is he telling true believers to keep on, even though I know you're going to keep on? What is going on? Well, two key questions. One, who has already committed the sin of apostasy in the book of Hebrews? We talked about this last week. Who has actually committed it? No one. And so that's important to understand as well. So he's warning of something. He hasn't said you, he never says you have done this. Now he says you need to be warned. We need to be warned. But he never says you have fallen away. So no one has yet committed this. So we need to understand that. The question really becomes who is being warned not to commit it in the book of Hebrews. And we said there were four main views. Okay, view number one. They say what the basic view is called the loss of salvation. Who's being addressed? This view says true believers. What is the sin warned against? 
It's true apostasy, falling away from the the salvation. You not only profess, but you actually possessed it. You were truly born again. And what is the judgment? You lose what you once had. All right. Second view says, hey, it has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with your sanctification. So you are eternally secure. We reject the loss of salvation. That's what this view. And it's about a loss, not of salvation, but of rewards. And therefore, it's talking to true believers. They have this in common. But what is the sin? It's not apostasy. According to this view, it's immaturity. Because in the, in, the, in the third warning in Hebrews 6, the third warning, it talks about, I, I, I wish I could talk to you as mature, but you are still immature. I wish I could feed you the meat of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but I have to feed you milk. So the idea is you're not going on to maturity. But, and I think I have changed it a little bit into your notes, it's immaturity to the point where you even can commit apostasy. You can actually deny, you can be so immature that you deny Christ and yet you are still saved. So the problem with this view is the falling away is not just a falling away from bearing fruit as a Christian, but you can even fall away from the faith and yet still be saved. So the problem is, you've got unbelieving believers. I hope that sounds like a contradiction. Okay, you've got disciples that can deny Christ. You've got followers that don't have to follow. They can literally, totally fall away, and yet still be saved. So what is the judgment? Well, it's not a loss of salvation. It's a loss of temporal blessings. So if you would grow and be obedient and mature as a Christian, God will bless you in this life. If you don't, God will punish you. So all the punishment that we just read about, it's punishment in this life. Okay? That ought to cause some tension for you because, man, that's pretty severe talk about judgment, you know. I mean, you would just expect fire to be dropping down out of heaven based on that. Loss of eternal rewards. There is an eternal aspect to this, but you're not losing your salvation. You're losing your rewards that you could have earned. And the suffering is the suffering talked about in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is the great passage about God disciplining God, our Heavenly Father, disciplining His children. And so what they say is all the judgment in these warning passages, the, what we just read in Hebrews 10 is really that fatherly discipline that's talked about in Hebrews 12. The, the, the thing is, in Hebrews 12, none of this language is used in Hebrews 12. And here, there's nothing about a loving father it's falling into the hands of a fiery, consuming God. Okay? So that's that loss of rewards. Then you have these two views. They're similar, and yet they're different. I almost put a dotted line here because I really think these are the two views that are really being discussed. This is the minor one. This is the major idea, the test of genuineness. The uniqueness of this view is it's saying what who's being uh, addressed are false believers who have temporary faith. So the warnings are not for believers, therefore people who think they are believers. These people were truly born again, lose their salvation. These people think they're saved, but they're not saved, and therefore they prove it by falling away. And the result is they prove to be unbelievers, therefore they suffer eternal judgment. The means of salvation view which doesn't mean this is how you're saved. It means God uses means in order to save us. In other words, when you got saved, God used the means of the preaching of the word. He used the means of maybe coming to a church. He used the means of people witnessing to you. This view says these warnings are a means by which God saves people. Uh, he encourages us on the path to our final salvation. So we're being discussed true believers. The apostasy would be truly falling away from the salvation they profess, but because we're true believers, we don't fall away and we persevere to the end. 
And the result of this is he expects them to prove themselves to be believers. Now, obviously, if someone does fall away, what do they prove themselves to be? Unbelievers. But the focus is on you. You who profess to know Christ. You who have manifested fruit. You who are still... Uh, who, you who are on the, on, on the race of faith, keep running that race. Keep persevering. Don't, don't uh, get sluggish. Don't fall away. So, there you go. That's the reviewing. Now, uh, does anybody have any questions? Because I, I did want to make time for questions. So, does anybody have any questions? And if you ask a question and I delay it, it's, good, it's because we're going to just, you know, I'll, I'll address it a little bit later. Yeah. Um, view number one. Maybe I'm missing something, but I I thought I was not going to lose my salvation no matter what. Right. None. Of, these are none. Of, these are just options of interpretation. Oh. These are these are options. So this is how different people interpret the Bible. These passages, not the Bible. These passages. Okay. Does that help you? Yes. So I'm not saying any. So, right. So, all of these could be wrong. You know, any one of them could be, you know, could be right, right? So, these are views. Does that help you? So, I've kind of played my hand a little bit, but I'm, I'm just introducing views. Now, how is uh, apostasy a sin? If I, if I, because I was looking on my phone, the translation is when I say no to the religion. I don't want to be on the religion anymore. How is that a sin? I mean, to the point of that I can even lose, lose my salvation or go to hell. Okay, so what you're asking, how is it a sin to say no to what? To the religion, to my faith. Okay, so we want to be specific because it's saying no, apostasy. It, 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 there's a general term, so like, I'm sure maybe Mormons talk about apostates. You know, maybe other, you know, religious groups talk about people falling away. But what we're talking about here is falling away from the gospel. So it's denying. And look, the great definition of the, probably the best definition that you find is right there in verse 29. So it's denying Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior and King. It's trampling on, it's saying Jesus is, you know, he's no, he's no better than anyone else. I don't believe in him anymore. I don't trust him anymore. It's, it's saying the sacrifice on the cross, the blood that we're going to talk about upstairs uh, this morning, that blood is of no value. It's, it's, it's I treat it like the trash that I throw out. Does that help? Now, you can see where that's sin, right? Okay. And it's not just any sin. It's, it's saying, I once believed and trusted, valued, treasured, banked my whole, trusted my whole life to this, and now I'm walking away from it and denying it. And doing so, remember, deliberately and persistently. So it's not just a season of doubt. It's not even a season of denial. It is a deliberate, ongoing, persistent, I'm out the door. Does that help? All right, great questions, great questions. Anybody else? So a lot of questions are good for clarification. So are you saying, yeah, so I'm not, no, 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 we don't teach this. Okay, no, no, no. Where would Judas fit into any of these categories? Well, you know, the difficulty with someone like Judas, I mean, I think he does, but you got to understand Judas was pre-cross pre, uh, uh, and pre-giving of the Spirit. So it's always hard, both in Old Testament and in the Gospels, to really discern some of these things because once Christ, once the Gospel was accomplished, once Christ came, died, rose, and the Spirit was given, things become much more, uh, it's much more different. But Judas would be more like a false believer, someone who was never saved and then proved it by walking away and, yeah, apostatizing. You just kind of follow along but never really believe. Yeah. Yeah. He would be like a temporary... I mean, it does fit in this. It's just that it's not easy to put pre-cross people into these 
ideas. But yes, temporary believer gave every indication. In fact, when Christ said, one of you is going to betray me, no one even suspected. You know, they all thought they suspected themselves. Shows you something about our hearts. Okay, no one, everybody didn't just look at Judas, you know, okay. So, yeah, yeah, and he proved to be an unbeliever, okay. Whereas Peter's denial of Christ, denied him three times, but not, and it wasn't, it, it was deliberate, but it wasn't persistent, and it wasn't a heart set in, in walking away from Jesus. Why? Because he, as soon as he did it and Christ looked at him, what did he do? He wept. He knew. Oh, what have I done? And then, of course, he repented and Jesus restored him. Very different. Okay? And therefore, he proved to be what? He proved to be a believer. All right? Any other questions? Good questions. All right, let's keep moving. Let's reflect a little bit. Uh, the book of Hebrews emphasizes persevering in the race on the journey. I want to get you uh, persevering. It really emphasizes the idea of the race and of the journey. It, it, it sees salvation as a past event, a present event, and much, much, very much a future event. The whole idea of Hebrews is you're like the you're like the the generation of Israel you're wandering in the wilderness headed to the promised land eternal salvation so you're 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 a pilgrim you're an alien you're an exile you're an immigrant and you're headed to the home country very that's a big emphasis and helps you understand this uh, so let's look at uh, let's look at another. Uh, these, these are the four views again, but they're from the standpoint of the race. Okay, so this is view number one. The racetrack represents salvation. Christians may abandon the race, and if they do, they lose their salvation. So the warnings and admonitions raise doubts, and so they, they warn you, hey, you know what? You could lose this. Keep running. And so it, it raises doubts. It's like, well... Am I going to finish? Hey, I'm having a hard time right now. Does this mean I'm going to fall out of the race? Am I going to lose my salvation? Do you see that? And the prize is, so you're already saved, but you're not yet fully saved. The prize of salvation, you may lose it. Okay, that's view number one. View number two is the loss of rewards. The racetrack here is not salvation, it's sanctification. You're not running the race of salvation, you're running the race to be sanctified and Christians may abandon the race, but you won't lose your salvation. You're going to lose your rewards. The warnings and admonitions, again, raise doubts. Am I going to, am I going to, am I going to win the prize? Am I, am I going to uh, suffer severe judgment in this life? And am I going to suffer a loss of rewards? And, and will I miss out on the millennial kingdom? Will I be thrown out of the kingdom for a thousand years until I get cleansed and shaped up? Uh, that's the idea. The third view is the racetrack represents salvation. This is the test of genuineness. To abandon the race proves one was never saved. But the result is you kind of run backwards, always wondering, hey, did I really, was I really saved? And how am I doing? Do I have enough fruit? You know, how am I doing? Uh, I remember that, but well, I got saved three times. Maybe the third one took. Now, you see the idea? So it's more introspective. It's looking back. It's looking inward. Third view. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because the Bible, as we're going to see, teaches us to make sure, make your calling and election sure. And, and uh, it does tell us that uh, a lack of fruit indicates something about our spiritual life. So this isn't totally wrong. The question is, is this what, is this what the passages in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews teaching? The fourth view sees the warnings as God's means of salvation. And the trace track is, is salvation. And if one abandons the race, one will not receive the price. You will not be saved. But the warnings are a call for faith that endures and receives the prize 
which true believers will do and which the author assumes and says, you're going to do it. You are not those who shrink back. And so the warning is, keep looking forward. Keep running towards the kingdom that is coming. Keep running towards our final salvation. Kind of like the Pilgrim, uh, the uh, Psalms of Ascent series where we were on a journey, on a journey to the kingdom. All right? Granted, this is kind of hard to understand, but that's why once you see the forward aspect of the book of Hebrews, because this is really where the emphasis is. It's really on looking forward, not looking within, not looking back, but running forward. Okay, so let's take a let's look a little bit uh, in your notes. Oh, let me go right here. Okay, this is kind of a crazy one, but this kind of takes all of those views and kind of compares and uh, contrasts contrasts them. So up here is view number one: loss of salvation. Here's view number two: loss of rewards. And what these two views have in common is not all believers will persevere. The ones that don't persevere here lose their salvation. The ones that don't persevere lose their rewards. Here's view view number three, test of genuineness, test of true salvation. And here's view number four. What these two have in common, all believers will persevere. All believers will persevere. Some fall away because they're not true believers. But... The means of salvation says, hey, the idea is keep running forward. Keep persevering towards the goal. Assurance of, is of the essence of faith, present assurance of final salvation, but not apart from perseverance. All right? And there's much more in that. but So, like, these guys... Loss of salvation, good works are necessary for final salvation. Uh, Good works have no necessary relationship to salvation. Good works are necessary only as evidence. Good works are necessary for final salvation. So that kind of gives you the idea. All right, now, here's what we want to do. Is look in your notes. I just want to briefly go over... This forward idea. So I told you, it's in uh, Hebrews 11. Abraham lived like an alien, immigrant, a sojourner. In in Hebrews 11.9 it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents. There's that idea. Hey, I'm not home yet. I'm moving forward to God's coming kingdom. Okay, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, who, whose architect and builder is God. Moses, in Hebrews 11, chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. Rather than staying in Egypt, he went on the pilgrimage. He went on the journey. He started running the race with the people of God. Again, in Hebrews 11, verse 13, all the Old Testament uh, saints confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This is not my home. This is not my home. I am headed on this race towards the final kingdom and final salvation. they deserve they but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god's not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared a city for them there's a goal that we're running to and then of course the classic passage in hebrews about running this race is what passage hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. He's made it through 12 chapters. Now he's driving home his point. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all who have run the race, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, so it's this forward image. It's not looking back. It's not looking within. It's it's running the race that is before us. 
Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're, our salvation is already, and yet it's not yet. Uh, who endured the cross. See, Jesus ran the same race. Jesus ran the same race, and he finished faithful. And because of that, we fix our eyes on him. Uh, then in chapter tw- at the end of chapter 12, it talks about receiving a coming kingdom. Look at verse 28, chapter 12, verse 28. Notice what it says. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom, or literally, since we are receiving a kingdom, present tense, the kingdom is ours, and yet it's not yet. We, we have the kingdom, and yet the kingdom's not here. We're receiving it. Again, forward, forward, forward. Um, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, this God is, look, we, we need to take serious who, we're fo- uh, who we believe in, who we're following, and who we're running towards. So warning, you know, the warning is valid even for a true believer. Okay. Um, And then as you go through the book of Hebrews, it talks about endurance over and over, perseverance. It talks about receiving a future inheritance. It talks about entering a future rest in chapters 3 and 4. It talks repeatedly about holding fast to our future hope. Everything is orientated towards that. Not, I shouldn't say everything. The emphasis overwhelmingly is on the future and keeping our eye on the future, okay? Plus, there's two key verses uh, that point to holding fast to the end. Look in in your Bibles to Hebrews 3, 6 through 7, and then again, two times in Hebrews 3. So this is very early on in the book, and this is in the second warning passage. These verses are in the context of the second warning passages. So look at what these say. And to be honest with you, these two verses really support, uh, lean very heavily towards this view. Okay, so what I'm saying is, it's not that this view is invalid, it's just that view number four is the emphasis. But the reality is, if people don't persevere, they prove that they are unsafe. So let's look at these two verses. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, his people, whose house we are. We are his people. But notice, what's it say? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm. If we hold it fast. Okay, if we hold fast our hope, future-oriented, okay? Then drop down to verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. Oh, wait wait a minute. And before, he says that, hold the confidence of our hope firm. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's a warning. So he's saying, look, you're his house if you hold fast to the end. Therefore, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Keep running the race. All right. Then drop down to verses 13 and 14. He does it again. But encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Do you you hear the echoes of Hebrews 10 where he says, uh, do not forsake the uh, forsaking of yourselves. Rather, encourage one another all the more as you see the day of... See, he's saying the same thing through the whole book. So here's he says, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. Because basically what he means there is one, one day it's going to be called tomorrow. And that's when the kingdom comes and it's too late. So today is, today is every day until Christ comes back. Make sense? Okay, so live, you know, live it. Live it, live it, live it. Don't slack off. Don't fall away. Don't fall to the side. Don't deny Christ because it's still today. Keep running the race. Now notice, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers, partners with Christ. We are Christ's partners. Before it was we are His 
people. Now it's we are his partners, but notice what he says. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So again, that already not yet idea. You're saved, but you're, you have yet to be saved. So keep running, keep living for him. While it is, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. That is in the wilderness. Now, at this point, okay, first of all, do you understand the future orientation of this book? quick survey okay now let me say this i want to give you a reminder and it kind of brought up a little bit of what carmen's question kind of touched on this i want to give you a reminder because as i talk to people this week after last week's lesson i think we need this reminder whenever you're faced with multiple views go into berean mode not buffet mode whenever you're faced with multiple views go into berean mode Not or not buffet mode. Does that make sense? Well, it will here in a minute. So what, what do I mean by that? The idea is when we have these four views, we don't go any me any any meany, you know, we don't pick. It's not a buffet. You know, when you go a buffet, you go, don't like that. That looks pretty good. Let me chew on that a while. No, that wasn't too good. Now, I'm going to go back for seconds on this one. Okay. When you have various views of a passage of the Word of God, don't go into buffet mode. Go into Berean mode. Um, It's easy to get in the mindset, well, which one do I want to be true? And here's what happens. If you don't study the passage like a Berean, you don't get into the passage, you start picking like a buffet based on personal what? Well, first of all, personal preferences. You just look at these views and go, you know what? I like that one. And why? I don't know why. I'm just going with it. Okay, that's preferences. Secondly, based on experiences. You might look at different options, these different views, and you can, based on experience, say, well, I used to be in a church like this, so I know, you know, I don't like that. I had bad experience in a church that taught you could lose your salvation, so I don't like that view. I'm going to go with one of these others, based on experience or based on what you were taught growing up, okay? Well, I was always taught uh, uh, once saved, always saved. I could never do anything, you know, works were totally separated completely from my sanctification and from my salvation, and so, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with this view. You know, it's based on experiences. Another way of choosing views is based on opinions. This one just makes sense. I've never studied the passage, but this one makes sense to me. You know, just because it's my opinion. It fits with how I view the world. I view the world this way, and the way I've, you know, we come to these things with our worldview. And as we're looking at it, it's like, you know what? In my worldview, this fits. All right. The fourth thing that really influences the buffet choice of different views is loved ones. And listen, this is a real issue. And that's why people are interested in it. That's why some of you are here, because you're interested in this, because you have loved ones, a spouse, a child, a parent, a sibling, a close relative, a close friend, a mentor. I've been in Christianity enough. My very first theology teacher who graduated with a Ph.D. from my seminary that I at that time was not my seminary. It was my dream institution. And he was like my dream professor who taught me my very first understanding that this book is inerrant and, 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 and all authoritative and it's God's little word. By the time I graduated and went to seminary with his recommendation with his uh, 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 in, um, whatever you call resume or what do you call it when someone yeah letter of recommendation he divorced his wife and denied the faith and I sat right there on the front row that guy I mean I can see him in my eyes I can hear him so this is real stuff so it might be someone who taught you 
It might be someone that led you to Christ. Someone that led you to Christ may now deny the faith or at least be in this process. So, instead of going into buffet mode, we need to go into Berean mode. And what's Berean mode? Look at Acts 17.11. I think I have it in your notes. Now, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So, when I present these views, ultimately, I'm going to teach you what is consistent with the doctrine of our church, what, what, what I believe from the... Uh, studying these passages, which I've already told you, I'm not going to say, hey, I, I absolutely know. Because I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I've, I've, I've waffled even today. Or not today. It's not that bad. Uh, this week. I pretty much convinced myself last week that it was this view. And then I did some more study. And it's like, so it's one of these. One of these. But here's my point. you got to study the passage. So how do you do it? You study the passages in context. You compare Scripture with Scripture. You interact with other mature students of the Word, both dead and alive, both in person and in print, both through commentaries, church history, and your local church. So the idea is you study the passage for what it says. You compare Scripture with Scripture because whatever Hebrews teaching is teaching has to agree with the rest of the Bible. Because there's one author, ultimately, and that is God. And then you interact with other believers. And then you establish your convictions with humble obedience, showing grace to those who disagree. Look, I'm not going to get real arrogant and puffed up if, you know, if people disagree on this, because this is hard stuff. It's just hard. And if, if, if some of you have more certainty and can show it to me from the passage, I am more than willing to sit and be taught. Okay, so that's the idea. Now, refuting. Let's move on to refuting a little bit. View number one. So, Carmen, this will come in, relates to your question. All right. View number one, loss of salvation simply is simply not biblical when we compare Scripture with Scripture. It simply is not biblical when you compare Scripture with Scripture. Okay. It sure seems like this is the view when you study Hebrews, but you have to compare. What did I say? You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture, right? And when you see Scripture with Scripture, view number one struggles with the sovereignty of God's power and the security of His promises. Look, when you compare the clear passages that talk about God's predestination of His elect before the foundation of the world, His unconditional promises... John 10, John 8, Romans 8, to secure the salvation of his sheep. When you see his sovereign power to keep his own, therein God keeps those through faith. When you see the person and the priesthood of Christ like you do in the book of Hebrews, and when you think about the presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit, which is the down payment on our final salvation, this simply will not hold up. Are you with me? All right. That's number one. And at the bottom and at the end of the day, even though these people believe God has power to keep us, at the end of the day, human ability trumps God's sovereignty in this view. And that's just denied everywhere in Scripture. Are you with me? Okay. View number two, loss of rewards. This is a biblical truth, but it cannot be justified in the context of the warning passages. Look, as one man said to me last week, he said, I've been in churches that taught all three of these truths. And you're right. Our church, we teach all three of these. All three of these are biblical in the sense that you can lose rewards. God does discipline his children. And yes, there are false believers in every church. And yes... We need to persevere as true believers. The question is, is this view taught in the book of Hebrews in the warning passages? Are you with me? And I would say no based on two reasons. The language of judgment is so severe, it just it's not temporal blessings. It's not 
just a loss of eternal rewards. The language is too strong, too severe, and too clear. Are you with me? Secondly, and this is the real clincher, look again at verse 28 and 29. The author argues from lesser to greater. And what he says is, in verse 28, he says, Look, if you forsook the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, in the law of Moses, you would die without mercy, physical death. Boom, you're done. Physical death. And then he says in verse 29, he goes from lesser to greater, how much severe is the punishment? So think about this. On this view, what these guys argue is, look, under the old covenant, you would immediately die. Well, guess what? In this one, you just have a, a, a miserable life. And they try to say, you say, well, how is that worse than dying? Well, there's places in scripture where a believer said, oh, I wish I were dead. You ever said that? You know, I wish I was dead. Because living is so miserable. Well, we get that. But I'm sorry, death is worse than whatever you're going through. Okay? And so the whole, I, the whole context of this passage implies this. Under the old covenant, you would lose your life. Under the new covenant, if you walk away from Christ, you are going to lose your eternal life. That's what's greater. So, I, this view struggles with the severity of God's judgment. And we simply can't embrace a view that radically sub- separates salvation from serving, justification from sanctification, faith from works, and believing from following. This view says basically you can ultimately live any way you want as long as one time in the past you made a decision for Christ, you're, you're fine. And that just isn't consistent with the tenor of scripture okay view number three test of genuineness this is also biblical truth but it doesn't seem to be the main emphasis it doesn't seem to be the main emphasis it is taught in scripture there are false believers who have temporary faith in fact let me turn you to one luke chapter uh, eight turn to luke i gave you all sorts of examples there in your notes but turn to luke chapter eight This is the parable. This is from Jesus. This is a parable of the four soils. And this is one of the reasons this view has a lot. The the idea of these are temporary believers has a lot to commend it. Luke chapter 8. So you're talking about the four soils, right? And I want you to look at verse 13. Luke chapter 8, verse 13. This is the uh, second soil. The rocky soil. So the first soil, the seed falls on hard ground. The devil, the birds come, which represent the devil. He takes the seed. They are unbelievers. Everybody agrees to that. The question is, are these next two soils believers or are they unbelievers, false believers? Well, look at verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those that when they hear, receive the word. Which is exactly what it says in Hebrews 10, after receiving the word. So these people receive the word with joy. So there's emotional, and there, there, there's excitement, there's enthusiasm. Wow, they're, they're saved. And the, but, notice, they have no firm root. And what you're going to see in this parable, I believe that speaks to their heart. The word has not really changed their heart. And these having no firm word root, they believe. So what? Look, man, they're receiving the word. They have joy. They believe, but how, for how long? For a while. They have temporary faith. And in time of temptation, what do they do? The very same idea. That word from Hebrews, they fall away. But drop down to verse fifteen of the true, the ultimate believer. I would say the true believer, the only true believer in this parable. Look at verse 15. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word. But notice, all of them heard it. Other, Some of them received it and even believed it. But notice, the word in a honest and good heart and hold it fast, sounds like Hebrews, and bear fruit with perseverance, sounds like Hebrews. So I was like, wow, it's, it's this view. It's this view. 
Well, obviously it's taught in Scripture. But the question is, verse three, uh, view number three struggles with sal- the salvation descriptions. It just When you read through the book of Hebrews, it sounds like the people who are being warned are actually true believers. They are not false believers. And so that brings you to view number four. This is also biblical truth, and it does seem to be the main emphasis. This seems to be the main emphasis. Persevere as a true believer. Okay? So, the problem with this view is, why are you warning people who won't fall away? Why are you... Do do, do you understand the problem with that? Why are you warning people not to fall away when you believe they're true believers who won't fall away? Why are you telling me not to do something I'm not going to do? Well, that's the issue. So here's number two. Why do these warnings matter to those who are truly saved and yet won't fall away? Why warn? Why do these warnings really matter? Let me give you three uh, three points here, and this will be done, and we can, again, ask questions next week. Even though we are preserved by God's sovereign power, does this mean we never need to be warned of sin, the sin of apostasy, and exhorted to persevere? And the answer to that would be no. We do need to be warned, even if it's not something we're going to do, because God uses means to get us to where we want. For instance, salvation, evangelism and missions. He, uh, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the Word of God. <coughs> and the Word of God includes warnings. Those warnings inspire our faith. And I don't know about you, is I don't have a, 100% certainty about these, these two views, but what I know is this, in studying this, my faith has increased. My motivation has increased. My desire to be obedient has increased. My desire not to get sluggish, apathetic, and fall away has increased. And that's, what true, that's how true believers are going to respond to this. They're going to be motivated. Uh, prayer and prophecy. Just because God has predicted something or predestined something doesn't mean we don't pray about it. God uses means. And then sailors and shipwrecks. Paul was on a shipwreck in Acts 27 where God said, Paul, everybody's going to be saved on this ship. And then Paul proceeded to warn them, don't get off the ship. Well, God already told them they're all going to be saved. So why did he warn them? Because God uses means. You know, so just because God has guaranteed our salvation doesn't mean we don't need to be warned not to fall away. Does that make sense? All right. Second, will those who are preserved by God's sovereign power consider these warnings about apostasy and these exhortations to persevere to be an unnecessary waste of time? Well, I've said that repeatedly. No. Because listen, it's not just the book of Hebrews where these warnings are. Paul gives warnings in Colossians 1. So the Bible is full of warnings. And true believers don't see them unnecessary. True believers are, are, are drawn to them to continue to persevere. And then finally, the third point. Will those who are warned about apostasy and exhorted to persevere become less sure of their salvation? And fearful of not measuring up. Well, you might if you look only at view number three. But in view number four, no. Because who are we supposed to fix our eyes on? Jesus and what he's done. I'm not supposed to fix my eyes on what I'm doing. I'm supposed to keep my eyes on what he has done. The great high priest and his blood covenant. And then look, let me take to this and then I got to wrap up. So you can hear me again here in a few minutes. Hebrews 13. Turn to Hebrews 13. Turn to Hebrews 13 and look at verses 20 through 22. This is how the author ends this book. With a focus on Christ, with a focus on the covenant, uh, on the new covenant. But notice Hebrews 13 verses 20 through 22. This is his benediction and it's my benediction to you. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, the new covenant, even Jesus our Lord, the coming King, equip you 
This one, this God who has done all this to secure and accomplish your salvation, who has provided you the Savior, a shepherd, and the blood, and the sacrifice, this God, may He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And yet, look look at the very next verse. So that's all God. You know, like, focus on God. God's going to do this. He's working in you. He's doing this. He's equipping you. And then he says this, But I urge you, it's like his last warning, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. And then like any preacher, For I have written to you briefly after 13 chapters. Funny. But here's my point. This word of exhortation includes these warnings. And so here he says, look, focus on God. God's doing it all. But in that process, listen to these warnings, listen to these exhortations, and run your race to the finish. And realize this, those that do fall away are false believers. The question is, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll look at this, ne- we'll talk about this next week because I had this conversation with one of you. How do you pray for someone like that? How do you pray for something? Uh, probably all of us know someone like that. So, how do you think about them? How do you relate to them? How do you pray for them? All right? So, we'll talk about that next week as we wrap up our discussion of the warning passages. All right? Don't fall away. Keep running the race. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have equipped us. You have sent your, save, your Son as our Savior, our Shepherd, and our Sovereign King. You have provided the blood sacrifice that cleanses our conscience, that transforms our heart, and gives us the ability, the desire, and the perseverance to finish faithful. Father, may each person in this room, first, make sure that they're truly born again. Second, persevere in fixing their eyes on you. May we not, may none of us, may none of us be those that shrink back to destruction. May we be those who persevere, bearing fruit, holding fast, and bearing fruit that remains for the glory of you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.